Hello, everybody, and welcome back to episode 29 of Pod Canna. This week, we had one of the biggest tournaments for Rise of the Floodborne. I think it was the biggest tournament uh, to date in the new set. It was around 200 people, so we have deckless from that. Looks like Ruby Amethyst is emerging as one of the top decks in the format, and we also have spoilers for the next set. I know it feels like the new set just came out, but we do have spoilers for the next set, and they are pretty interesting. We have a new card type in the form of locations um, and cards that benefit from that, which is going to be really interesting to dive into. But before that, just want to get an update on how y'all's week went in Lorcana. Kawa, I know you played a tournament. How did that go? Uh, it was really fun. Uh, it was supposed to be like a 50-player tournament. Turns out only half that amount actually showed up. So about 25 people. Um, but it was a lot of fun. It was uh, five rounds of Swiss. I came top four in the end. And, I mean, the best thing about it was I just, you know, five of us came up from the south of Ireland to the north of Ireland. Really long drive. You know, just talked Lorcana all weekend. So, uh, yeah, it was an absolute blast. And the decks that I saw were really interesting as well. Obviously, a lot of Amber Steel. Um, fair amount of Ruby Amethyst as well. I think there was five Amber Steel on the top eight and then three Ruby Amethyst as well. And obviously different techs in, in different players' decks. So, yeah, overall, it was an absolute blast. What about yourself, Moyen? Mm, I've just been enjoying Pixelborn... Um, Pixelborn Ladder, seeing the meta evolve. Got to try some of the flute, which I'm very happy about. Have, had a good time. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, interested to hear how that flute went. Uh, but first, Kala, what deck did you play at that tournament? Yeah, so I played Amber Steel. I decided to play Amber Steel, and I was building the deck. And uh, of course, hearing Moyen talk, talk about the flute last week, I was like, I have to humor him. I have to, I have to try it out. And uh, I'm happy to report the card did pretty well. Uh, I don't know about running more than one of it in the deck, like, because I caught one of my lanterns to run it, and I, you know, having two lanterns is great, having three lanterns is probably really good, but having the flute in there instead was still pretty decent, like, I'm pretty sure it won me at least one or two games where, without the flute, I would have been on maybe 17 or 18 lore, and it actually got me there. But yeah, my main, my main list was, um, Amber Steel, because I just thought it was the most consistent into everything. I still managed to beat uh, one or two Ruby Amethyst players, but that was definitely the matchup that gave me uh, the most trouble for sure. Like if you get be prepared three times in a row, there's not much that you can do about that. Like it's it's pretty hard to recover. But um, yeah, this deck was an absolute blast to play. Uh, I actually run, well, I say I run. Moyen suggested to me to cut the Cinderella's, uh, the big Cinderella's in particular. And I have to say, I did not miss it. I really did not miss it. Um, I know a lot of people are pretty high on the card. It's obviously a really, really good card. But the reason why I felt like I didn't need it in this list was because I felt like I had some pretty big targets anyways. Like, I don't know, Amber Steel, not that the deck has become so tight for adding specific things, but I think people just prefer certain cards, which is fine, right? I've seen some people starting to cut Tinkerbell, like Big Tink, which is whatever, but I still think the card is like really, really good if you're playing against aggro, or even if you're just playing against any other deck, the card is just solid. Uh, I think anyone that's... I, I think... I want to check if we have a list coming up that has cut this card. Yeah, I think anyone that's cutting Rapunzel is actually insane. Rapunzel is one of the best cards in the game. I, I've seen some people run one of, so I've seen some people, people run zero. Even if you run three, I, I, I question it a little bit, because I just think this card is so good. Like, this, the amount of times... Even if you just ink it, like, I I have to say, like, you have to run this card. This, this card is what gave me my card draw engine like crazy. And, uh, yeah, 
I mean, the best thing that I did this weekend was playing World's Greatest Criminal Mind into my opponent's seven cast Cinderella and making them cry. That was that was the best thing that I did. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It, it's it's interesting how these Amber Steel lists are starting to sort of play out as the metagame develops uh, because the context of the metagame changes, right? You know, are there, is there more control? Are you facing more mirrors? Are the aggro decks mm -hmm. still very prevalent? Which is why you can see maybe the ideology behind cutting the Tinkerbell, even if it might not be strictly correct in and of itself do you so you know post playing that tournament if you were going to play a tournament next weekend and say it was big stakes would you replay the same deck that's a good question uh believe it or not i actually wanted to come into this tournament playing the ruby amethyst deck that we talked about last week because i feel i felt like it goes uh a little bit faster in terms of lore and that's the type of deck that i like but then you can also do some pretty cool things with like you know controlling the board a bit with you know, if you run Lady Tremaine in your deck with Maui, with uh, Yzma. I was really surprised by Yzma. I thought Yzma was a super, super good card. That card showed up a lot um, last weekend. So uh, I feel like I've built up a lot of confidence with this deck. I think this deck is extremely powerful. I'd still feel happy if I brought it to a tournament, but I think I'd want to personally give Ruby Amethyst a blast and uh, see how that went. Because I felt like if there's more Amber Steel in the room, the Ruby Amethyst matchup is probably... I'm not going to say probably. It, it just is more favored, in my opinion, at least. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I'd probably give that, give that a shot. And I want to get an update from you as well. Uh, are you considering going to the Houston 2K that's here in a couple of months? You're talking to me about that. It's definitely a bit of a trip, but are you still planning on going? I don't know, man. If if I'm enjoying Lorcana competitive as much as I am at the moment, I think I might. It all, it depends on so many factors, yeah, right? It depend, depends on time and funds and stuff like that, but yeah. it would be it would be really fun. It would be really, really fun. Yeah, although I would like to see you there because it's not too far for me, you should probably save your money for Q2 2024 because <laughs> yeah, that's when the yeah. actual competitive scene is going to come out. Um, we'll mm -hmm. see what they launch with. I mean, we really have no idea, but I'm assuming... Uh, based off the context of their competitors in the TCG space, that they will launch with a somewhat robust competitive circuit because obviously Flesh and Blood is sort of, I mean, it's kind of at the spearhead of that right now. They have a $1.5 million competitive prize pool each year. We see uh, Star Wars is committed to doing a pretty uh, intense system for their pro play and, of course, Magic the Gathering. So, I think it'll be good, but you never know. Uh, to be I honest. actually have some some info on that. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not going to speak about where I got the info, I guess, but I, I heard through the grapevine mm -hmm. that uh, yeah, they have a pretty good plan set in place. When I say a pretty good plan, like as as good as a plan from like I'm trying to think of the terms. Like, what is it like? You've got like regionals, nationals, and then worlds, like. That type of plan. They have a plan like that in place. Okay, that would be good. Yeah, yeah so regional mm -hmm. nationals worlds is good. Um, that's good. Mm -hmm. That 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 it definitely is on the lower end of uh, events, but you could sort of shore that up with a community organized event, a community tournament organized grassroots tour tournament organization setting up other events. Because, for instance, in Flesh and Blood, which also has uh, regionals, nationals, world championships, pro tours. They have something called callings, which are like Magic the Gathering Grand Prix or whatever, Magic the Gathering Magic Fest at this point. And that just gives you a way to engage with the game outside of these like marquee major events that maybe happen every, uh, maybe twice a year, every quarter. Uh, it just gives you more ways to play the game competitively. But like I said, that doesn't even have to come from the publisher. Like we've seen already, we have one case and two cases. It feels like every single weekend in Lorcana. So it's, it, it's definitely fine. But I'm happy that they're willing to put this sort of, um, this tournament to aspire to, right? Like these nationals or this world championship, because that'll give 
give you something to grind for, which makes the game really, really fun. Um, so yeah, I I'm pumped for that. Anyway, you guys want to, we're going to dive into the deck list from this, this tournament. I'm going to say the name of the location. No, it's, this is the organizer, but I'm definitely going to get it wrong because it's, it's European. It's Ludo Trotter. I'm sure I said that terribly. Um, looks like it's maybe French, uh, cause it has Rue de la, uh, turn. Yeah. I mean, maybe Moyen can help me with that, to be honest. Um, Moyen's, we're we relying on Moyen's French again, is it? <laughs> <laughs> So is the the Ludo Trotter is that supposed to be French? Uh, no, I don't, I don't know if that's supposed to be the French. Venue the the, the venue like is Rue de la Ternière. I I probably butchered that. Uh, Rue de la Ternière. Oh wow, we are okay. so bad, Brandon. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's where it was. Uh, around 200 players, almost 200 players, and so we have topic deck list to go from there. Which will break down the main topic. For the main topic. Though we're gonna we're gonna get into the spoilers, so we'll start it off with our first location, which is Forbidden Mountain Maleficent's Castle. Uh, it's a location and cost two can be inked, has one thimble <laughs> and six defense, and looks like it has one lore on it as well. So I'm not sure what the left end of this card is, or if they've explained it quite yet. Um, do either of you know what that symbol is? Uh, no, they have not revealed it yet. Um, I do have some thoughts on how locations work. I was talking with a few people, and uh, I think I, I have a theory as to what this number represents. Mm -hmm. uh, my theory is that it represents the amount of cards that, that can be, be that can be on a location. Yeah, I think and, that that's what that is. Yeah, and my other theory is again, I, I have no idea, but I'm assuming. The amount of lore that is present on a location card, I'm imagining, well, again, this is probably completely wrong, but if a card quests when they're on a location, it would be interesting if the amount of lore that is on the location is also gained by the card that quests there. So say if you got a card that can quest for one, maybe when it quests, it actually quests for two. That is what I would but, um, expect. Um, the only mm -hmm. other option really is that as a limiter so that like um, only characters with one more can be on top of this location. But I do think that you are correct. I think that that is what mm -hmm. it is. Um, we do have location payoffs as well. So effectively, you're paying two to put this on the board and we can only assume this is a permanent that will exist on the board. Um, I, going based off of Lorcana's current rule set, I would assume you can have as many locations as you want on the board. There won't be any sort of limitations um, in that. And for, I mean, this is a vanilla location. There's a, maybe, <laughs> wink, wink, maybe there's other locations with text on them. Um, keep in mind that some of the set was spoiled early, but these are the official spoilers. Just let's get into the cards though. Uh, Cause these give us context on what uh, these locations do in interactions with cards. I'm going to go ahead and skip Piglet because that is not a location payoff and go straight to Peter Pan, Lost Boy Leader, which is an Emerald card, Dreamborn Hero. It's a three, three cost four, can be inked. Um, a quest for one, it says, I came to listen to the stories once per turn when this character moves to a location, gain lore equals to that location's lore. So almost now it really looks like you're correct, Kawa, but it also <laughs> looks like being able that you can't play something onto a location looks like going to a location will be a game action for that character in the turn. So you will likely tap it in order for it to sort of move from the, the, I don't know, what do you call it? The the bat I don't know. <laughs> the board state, the, the battle, battle line, what yeah, yeah, sure. battlefield yeah. to the location. Looks like that will be an action. Um and then you will get some sort of payoff. Moyen, what are your thoughts? <laughs> what do you mean what are, what am I what are my thoughts? Do you think I, we're right? You don't even know the words. Yeah. Oh, um 
Yeah, probably. So I think it's the most likely scenario. You you can play it at a location, then next turn you maybe you can tap it to to move it there, and then maybe the payoff is uh, for a base location. You just get an, a little bit of extra lore depending on that location. Yeah. Yeah. Ba ba based on other cards, which we're not going to talk about today because there was a huge amount of leaks uh, before Rise of Floodborne even launched. But yeah, based on other cards. It really does seem like characters can only move to locations. You can't play characters on locations because I think other cards kind of benefit from that. Or there was at least other text on other cards that read when a character moves to a location or move a character to a location. Yeah. Yeah, that's really... It, it's a cool concept. Not a concept I've seen in uh, games that I played quite yet. I think Magic might have like a version of this. I mean, Magic has a million keywords and ways to interact with the game at this point because it's almost 30 years old. But... Uh, yeah, that's super interesting because you basically, I mean, you pay two to put this thing on the battlefield that does effectively nothing, and then you have to interact it with it for the rest of the game. I assume that these will be very hard to, well, actually, they can't be too hard to interact with because it looks like they have a defensive value. So in, in order for your opponent to clear this, it looks like they just need to lose tempo, so need to attack into it, so deal six damage to it and destroy it. So that's an interesting push and pull. We have one more location payoff card, which is Minnie Mouse Funky uh spelunker it is a steel card zero three cost one can be inked dreamborn hero quest for one and says when this character is out of location she gets plus two attack so yeah i mean interesting card so effectively a one cost two three but doesn't likely doesn't turn on for a turn after you play it because you're going to have to tap it to put it to that location but I don't know, this card actually if, seems if that's how it works yeah, yeah well i do i do i do think that's how it works because this card would be ridiculous if you just play if you have a location mm -hmm. and then for one you just play this and suddenly it's just a it's a one cost two three that seems ridiculous yeah, yeah. A one cost two three that probably costs for like at least two yeah at least two location. yeah that's ridiculous yeah, but, mm. but even with this having to move if if it works the way we think it does i think that still seems pretty good even if it's a little bit slow to get going yeah, it still mm -hmm. does seem quite powerful, to be honest. Um, even even under the context of the rules that we laid out, which are absolutely not set in stone, <laughs> uh, <laughs> this card does seem quite powerful at one. The other card is uh, definitely less exciting, but this one this one is, has, would have me pretty interested. Anyway, we're not going to dive too deep into the locations and the spoilers because I'm sure we're going to be getting more over the next couple months. And uh, frankly, we just don't know the rules. But that is our speculation so far. It's exciting. I mean, locations are not what I would have expected for the third set of Lorcana. I probably would have expected more keywords like on the cards themselves, you know, expanding into some of the things that Magic does in terms of card interactions. But locations feel very fresh and they're going to be an interesting dynamic in which to play the game. So I am excited. Anyway, did uh, did we talk about Piglet? No, uh, no, I skipped over Piglet because it wasn't a location payoff. But we can go back to it here, which is it's Piglet. Is that Pooh? Yeah, Pooh Pirate Captain. Uh, interesting <laughs> play on words there. It is That's an getting yeah. clipped out of context. Yeah. Oh it is an amber card. It's a two-two cost two. Can be inked. Dreamborn Hero Pirate Captain. Quest for one says, and I'm the captain. When you have two or more characters in play, this gets plus two lore. So this is more. Yeah, this is more support for aggressive decks, for swarm decks. I mean, this seems pretty freaking powerful, to be honest. You just play this in the Amber Steel deck that runs 12 one drops, and suddenly it's actually not too bad. Yeah. Yeah, and, and like, if that deck still exists, it would slot into a, a deck like mm -hmm. that immediately. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, exactly. It also works with Stitched Rockstar, which is crazy, right? You can tap this in order to draw an additional card, which you're already just slamming one drops. I mean, all of these cards, I mean, Peter Pan is the only one that has me a bit... Uh, 
unimpressed. That being said, maybe mm-hmm. you can bounce things around to location like all the time. It's a relatively easy thing to do, but ultimately Piglet and Minnie Mouse have been the most excited here. And I think they showed us off two powerful cards as well. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, For sure. Onto our spilled ink section, which is our listener question section. If you want to get your question read out on or statement read out next week's pod, just shoot us a comment on YouTube. We'll get it queued up. First one is from Crisis Crushers. This is going to be a bit of a long one, but I'm going to read it out. So it's our most upvoted comment. Want to take a second to say, I enjoy listening to this podcast so much on my way home from work on Fridays, but I want to touch up on the fishbone quill debate. Looking at you, Moyen. I have been playing Ruby Sapphire for the past couple of weeks and have done well at a couple of different locals in my area. I think fishbone quill is a great card for the deck and you guys might be looking at the card incorrectly. I hear you guys talking about using the card for ramping. I only uh, use this card to ramp on turn three after using a one jump ahead on turn two. And if I'm playing and if I'm playing against aggro, then once again, I'll use it, uh, use it on and on turn four. That way I can use be prepared on turn four and start taking control of the board against aggro. Granted, bounce aggro is a little different, but normally there is an Arthur in play. Uh, this turn you can hit it with Hades or Scar, but those are only the only turns I use it to ramp. Unless a situation comes up where I have to play a specific card in my hand, I need to ramp the extra card to play it that turn. Most of the times I use it, uh, optimally to ink unwanted cards out of my hand for turns uh for my turns inking instead of cards i don't want to ink like when i draw one jump one jump ahead on turn six instead of playing it and not knowing uh what is going into my inkwell i can just ink it with quill as if it was uh my one turn for ink doing that is no different than inking one of your cards that are inkable without quill it just basically allows you to optimally ink like i like like, say I want to play the Maui in my hand this turn, but I didn't draw the inkable, and, and all I needed is the one inkable card left, the only uninkable card left in my hand. I just think it allows you to make better inking decisions and play on your curve. Also, if you need to, you can pop it with Flavisham and draw two cards. I feel like I was in uh, elementary school there, and it was like my turn to read for the class, and I was like struggling <laughs> through this, <laughs> through this, uh, through this textbook, but. You guys got the gist of it. What do you think, Moyne, about the fishbone quill application here? Mm, okay. So where do I start? Um, I think where we left off, off last week was where I was saying... Uh, ba- basically, I, I ended up saying, um, I'm not a big fan of, of quill, but if, if you want to play it, that's fine. I don't think it's terrible. But I wouldn't be cutting a Mickey Mouse, so that's like a whole other debate. But I think there's a few good points raised here of why uh including fishbone quill can be good. I don't think I don't think it's a staple by any means, but there, there's some good points. So I would say um the most insightful point mm-hmm. here is that um it's the best way of ultra ramping to um be prepared. Bell, Bell can do the same, but this does it more efficient and you can do it with uninkables. Um and so more efficient because you can ramp with uninkables, plus you leave up an item that you could use later to maybe ink another uninkable or uh, use it for any item synergy. So th- th- I think that's a good point. Um, the, the One of the points I think missed the mark a little bit, which is... Um, uh, but only only half of it. It's, it's the point about the oh, I draw, I draw the one jump ahead, and it, inking it is better because then I don't lose a card from top of my deck. I think that's 
not that mm-hmm. important that you lose a card off the top of your deck. But I think the more important part that the point you could have made instead was like, oh, I don't need to play the one jump ahead, so I I save up two ink on that turn. So uh, there there's still a tempo advantage in that. So I think um with because there's there's more comments on on Quill. Uh, I think overall they changed my mind like a little bit. I think I've gained a little bit more respect for the card. I'm pretty sure I wouldn't play it four times, but uh, maybe in a few lists I, I would I would put a few copies in if I want to be hyper ramping to be prepared a little more against aggressive decks. Yep, and I will echo you in saying that the insight on being able to cast Be Prepared on turn four was not something that I had considered, so that could be uh, very powerful if you're in an aggro-dominated meta. Uh, and there is another concept that I want to touch on here is the idea of avoiding inking an unknown card off the top of the deck. Uh, which is an interesting concept in card games. It's not as relevant in this um, in this specific example, but I have encountered it in person while playing. People talking about the downside of inking the top card of your deck, potentially inking a very important card, uh, and it's like, is that actually in downside? And the the concept behind it is that the downside of inking the top card if you hit something that's really important maybe the last card last card that's needed for your combo in your deck and you effectively lose the game when you ink it or some something along that scenario right is that it's very very minuscule if not zero because the top card of your deck is both equally likely and equally unlikely to be the card that you need unless you have stacked the deck in some sort of way of course you can be at a smaller deck count where you are playing the odds of the the card being some sort of card that is important or not important, but ultimately the top card of your deck is both, yes, equally the card you want and equally the card you don't want. So the information of the top card of the deck can be, is much smaller. In, information like that in in general is less important than I think a lot of people give credence to. Yeah, so so basically, because this comes up in like any card game I play, is that like people think uh, that this kind of thing would be relevant, but I think basically every pan out where you don't see every card in your deck um losing a card of your deck doesn't matter if you, if you don't see your entire deck if you lost if someone like stole a card out of your deck randomly that that wouldn't change anything um and then there is the information part but that as you said doesn't matter that often plus in a lot of these things there is no information right if you play one mm-hmm. jump hand you don't you don't see the card you just put it as an ink without knowing what card that is mm-hmm. Because you could you could even say it's a, like, let's say your opponent milled top three cards of your deck, they go into discard pile or something. I don't know. Just just in ge- general card game fundamentals. If if you're not going through your entire deck, um, that that could be. So there's some upside and downside in that, right? Because your opponent knows you don't have these cards, but you also know that you're more likely to draw different cards. So in general. Uh, losing cards of your deck if you don't go through your deck doesn't matter. Okay? Yeah, I, 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 I feel like I've, I'm repeating myself, but it's this is very, very important, and it's a, it's, it's, a, it's something people seem to not grasp all that often. Yeah, it's, uh, it does come up in every single card game, and it's, I, I remember I encountered it when I first played, uh, Magic Constructor for the first time. Uh, on arena and i was facing a turbo fog or like kind of like mill deck and i i remember i was getting really frustrated because i would see my key cards to win the matchup be milled out of my deck and it would feel really bad but like you said 
as many as often as that happens, it is equally as often that they mill the bad cards out of your deck and draw you into your good cards, unless you see the full extent of your deck. So it's like, I think just when people approach these situations for the first time where they're presented with information like that, which is largely irrelevant, it does lead you to some sort of like kind of a fallacy and you get this feels bad moment. You're like, well, could I have avoided that? Where it's, it doesn't really matter if you avoided it because it is both equally and unequally likely to get you to your bad or good cards. It's an interesting concept. I mean, it comes up in Marvel Snap, in Lorcana, in Flesh and Blood, yeah. in Magic the Gathering. Every game. Yes. Also, same application is, uh, I don't Ariel is not a bad card because some of the time it puts a good card on the bottom of your deck. Mm. It does not matter. Yep. I mean, there... I and again, you will you will encounter situations where maybe this is more of a chapter one thing, but in chapter one, let's say you're playing against your opponent, they're in Ruby Amethyst, they've run out of cards, but they do have a magic mirror on the board. And the magic mirror is the only way that they can s draw themselves out of this game. And you play your Ariel and you see your beast and it's the last beast in your deck. And now, you know, you're doomed and you can't, you can never destroy the mirror and they're going to potentially draw it. It's like you actually didn't lose any equity in that scenario. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a funny concept in card games. Anyway, on to the next one. This is from Evil Magnitude. They say Amethyst feels kind of unstoppable right now with how, cr uh, now with how crazy the Amethyst bounce package is. Hope the meta is able to adjust or the future sets bring more counter play. The same package is a key part of both the best aggro deck and the best control deck so far. Feels a little unhealthy. Just to look, just look at how many deck lists, uh, for this episode, this is episode feature Amethyst. Uh, I will say that this podcast does have a little bit of an affinity towards Amethyst, so it could be a bit of a bias towards that in terms of deck lists that are featured featured in the podcast. But I do agree the bounce package in and of itself is um, multifunctional in the firms that it's good for the aggro deck, the mid-range deck, and the control deck. It's just very, very powerful in and of itself. I agree. Yeah, I, I think that that the uh, Evil Magnitude said it perfectly. Uh, I don't know if it's unhealthy. I think it's cool that you can use it in a variety of decks, personally. Um it's sure sure it makes it powerful but um i feel like amethyst was always always powerful right like with this previously with its draw capability obviously you can still draw a lot now but switching it up from just the draw like having this kind of lore gain but this lore gain doesn't just come from amethyst right like i mean we're gonna be talking about the flute in a little bit obviously the flute is not nearly as powerful as some of these amethyst cards but you can definitely do some stuff with it um yeah i mean I, I do agree. If you if you ask me right now, what do I think the... From set two, what was the most powerful color that came out of it or the most powerful combination or archetype? I would say the Bounce Amethyst stuff right now. Interesting. Um, so there's one thing you said there that I want to I wanna dig into a little bit more. You said, mm -hmm. that you said that Amethyst, you know, is and has been really powerful. I would ask you what color in Lorcana or what ink is not powerful? Which one do you see as not powerful? Or are they all powerful? Uh, there's one, well, okay, when, when you say that, it kind of just probably comes down to preference. So, some people are going to get offended, right, because they're saying, like, but it's exactly what you said, it's because, like, this podcast just has an affinity for Amazon's text, right? It's like, when I say powerful, that's, pro that's actually, it is the wrong word. In my opinion, I feel like it's, this is, this is stronger. But I feel like a lot of people think that this Amethyst combo, and this Amethyst package is really strong at the moment. Like, for example, so far from what we've seen in the meta, and I want to be proven wrong, uh, I think... Emerald has been quite lackluster for me, right? We, we looked at all of these Emerald discard cards previously and we were, we thought it was going to be absolutely insane. Brandon and Moyne were sweating, saying that Ruby <laughs> Amethyst's hopes and dreams are going out the window. Um, and I want to see the, the, uh, the Emerald discard package do pretty well. I mean, like, if we 
Come back to a heavy control meta, I think a discard deck will rise up because I feel like that's just going to do quite well against control. But mm -hmm. overall, I I just, yeah, no, I, I agree with what Magnitude's saying. I think it is very powerful. I want to ask you guys a question. Do you think it's unhealthy to have an ink or a color that is this powerful in so many decks or do you think it's a benefit? So we can just look at, I mean, let's just take the 200 player tournament. Um, mm. as it's a small sample size, but let's look at it. It's not really dominated by Amethyst. There's a lot of Amethyst and it, it does rear its head, but I think that the metagame is pretty diverse around around Amethyst, right? We have blue, Sa uh, sorry, Sapphire, Ruby. Uh, sorry, the mm. colors. We have Sapphire Ruby, which is a very, very good deck. It's a highly represented deck. You asked us two weeks ago, it was the best deck in the metagame. Um, mm. Just this week, it may have changed a little bit. And then I think that Amber Steel here is, <sighs> honestly, we don't have, we don't, we, all we have is top eight. But I wouldn't mm -hmm. be, I would be surprised if Ruby Amethyst was the most played deck of this tournament. Yeah, I think, I think Amber, Amber Steel. Yeah. yeah, I agree. Amber Steel mm -hmm. is a much more popular color combination and it's fundamentally powerful. So I think that Amethyst is strong. And I think I've always thought that Amethyst was strong, even in pre the game releasing when we were looking at spoilers due to Amethyst having that inherent draw engine. With that being said, in chapter two or in Rise of the Floodborne, a lot of colors got their draw engines shored up. We got draw in a lot more colors, things like steel. We got more in ruby, dinner bell, which I've never seen resolved in front of me yet, by the way. Um, but a lot of these other cards, all these other colors got access to be able to draw cards. That being said, what's really pushing Amethyst over the line right now is that bounce package. And in my opinion, it's not just a bounce package, but it's cards like Madame Mim. I remember seeing Madame Mim and immediately thinking like, holy crap, this is everything that this color needed because the just being able to get things down a turn before than they're supposed to getting a four three down clearing things like kuzco these pesky threats getting a three three on turn two is just so powerful even when you have that downside of bouncing your one drop back into hand but the downside is it's you it's usually only incurred if you don't draw that one drop because often you play the one drop gives you insurance on board then you bounce it back and you ink it and it's a really good play line from amethyst i'm gonna pass over to you moyen to get your thoughts um, so basically, I think something being pop uh, or a color or a deck being popular in the meta is, is is not a bad thing as long as there's options and um the color or the deck has strength and weaknesses. I would say. So if 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 that color is the best at everything that you want to be doing, I think that's that's an issue. But as long as, for example, right now we have um still still being a lot better against aggro or uh, st stuff like that and i and i think there's enough um reasons to be doing and experiencing different playlines then i don't think it's an issue and i don't think we're at that point yet where i would say it's an issue mm -hmm. and yeah i i agree with the madam mims being the thing that maybe pushes it to where it's at um and I think it's it's it might be the the two cost Madame more than it is the three cost. Surprisingly, I think right? It, yeah. it was very it was very easy to see that the three cost mem is good, but the two cost mem being good is very much down to how this game works. I think it's just the the reason why the two cost mem is so good is basically because of the resource system. Um, yeah, so in, in, in other games, you wouldn't really want to be sacrificing your turn one tempo just to have a little bit above average tempo on turn two. Um, if, if you can draw the parallels to, to any other card game you've played. But in this game, it's so different because your, um, 
your turn two play now is contesting every turn two play that they could have and more. And you don't have the turn one card you bounce back to your hand isn't like a bad card for the rest of the game that you don't want to be playing anymore. You can just ink that and keep playing cards um, for their specific turn. So I think that's that's the big reason why why Metamim is so much better than a card like this would be in a in a different card game. Yeah, I think that was well said. Um, I want to say though that I the in regards to Emerald, Emerald does feel like one of the weaker colors in Rise of the Floodborne. <laughs> For now, I mean that could change. And uh, yeah, I'm actually honestly at the at the risk of offending some people, I'm very happy that the Emerald discard deck is not a tier one deck. That deck is. Not super fun to play against. It's pretty toxic. It's interesting that that's the mechanic that they really leaned into for Emerald for Rise of the Floodborne was discard because discard in and of itself, it just it's it's a rough it's a rough archetype for uh, interaction and actually playing a two sided game. So I'm I'm kind of happy that Emerald got knocked off its peg a bit. It was very powerful in Chapter One. I know Chapter One was dominated by Wheel Steel decks and Ruby Amethyst Control was very powerful, but. There were a lot of aggro decks running around in Chapter 1 that were running Emerald, and Kuzco was definitely one of the key cards of that set. Anyway, next one. 11 Guitar Bro. They say, I've been seeing the Yellow Flute in my rank, Silver 3. I've been seeing a lot of Yellow Flute in my rank and, uh, on a lot of Yellow Steel. I think it's pretty good, especially with Ariel and Cinderella, and I think it's a max 3 of. So I just wanted to highlight this comment because it was a little bit vindicating to the to the theory crafting that was going on uh, last week. But that theory crafting is no longer theory crafting. I mean, Moyen, or not Moyen, but Kawa in, in, in extension of Moyen brought it to a tournament last weekend and did get top four. So do you guys think that this uh, flute is going to be something we're going to be seeing around more often? I don't know if it's going to be played in every Umber Steel deck. I think it will be preference. Uh, like many cards in Umber Steel at the moment, right? We've seen so many different versatile lists. I don't know. I I find it hard to believe that we're going to see Umber Steel lists running around with three ofs of flu. Like, I, I think it's maybe a little bit much. Moyen may be, may be cooking something we don't know about with, with these flutes. But, um... But like, I, I think it's good. I think I think having the one of in the deck is fine. Maybe two of, But it just... You just have to kind of look at, okay, if I'm taking out a card to put in the flu, is it actually kind of worth it? Like, you know what I mean? That, that's how I would, that's how I evaluated it when I put in my card. So what do you think, Moin? I think if we had we a play competitive four circuit. Off. That's what he's going to say. <laughs> okay, go ahead. I think if we had a competitive circuit, it would lead to a point where people would play it, let's say two to four times in their decks. Um, but I think because we don't, people won't um, realize how good it is. And because there, there won't be enough high stakes tournament to then see just see um, based on the results that the matter adapt. So I think people would keep sleeping on the flute. Keep sleeping on Sleepy's flute, yeah. <laughs> All right. Next one here is from uh, Daidra. They say, fi- oh, another Fishbone Quill. So Fishbone Quill is superior to Mickey because it lets you be prepared on turn four, like we heard earlier. I don't think that Mickey is bad, but if your local meta is heavy on aggro decks, Quill is a better choice. So I just want to pass this one over to you, Moyne, to evaluate that second sentence, that <laughs> Quill is better than Mickey if your local meta is heavy on aggro decks. Do you agree? Mm. Okay, so the f- first sentence, I know you wanted me to... Uh... Um, talk about second sense but first seconds almost triggered me because it just said it's superior to Mickey when the reality is Mickey has upsides and Quill has upsides right it depends on the situation sometimes one's better sometimes there's there's reasons for both right Um, so even against aggro 
against hyper aggro, I can see Quill helping more. So what it does do better is ramp you to an early be prepared that can um, shut down their aggression for now. Uh, what Mickey Mouse is, uh, is doing better is maybe if they had a little bit of a slow start, it can allow you to um, not have to be prepared because you have an extra 1-3 on the board that keep that helps you to trade an extra 1-1 one, one after you cleared their bodyguard with something else. Um, so Mickey Mouse, especially Mickey into into Maui after having one in a, a turn one and a turn, or like having something early, can um, can also help a lot. So I don't know. I think I don't I don't know why we need to be comparing Quill to Mickey Mouse. Basically, Makes I think sense. if you want to play they're, Quill, that's they're fine. different cards, right? Like they do different things. Yeah. Yeah. And you could play I mean, both, they, they, right? They, they both accelerate your your ink, but I think. Both cards are very good. I think mm -hmm. Mickey Mouse is a bit more baseline good, while Quill is a bit more um, situationally good against uh, just for hyper ramping. Be prepared. Mm -hmm. All right, next one here is from the Fallen Monk. They say, "What do you think of Sheer Khan in a Ruby Amethyst deck?" I know Sheer Khan was a card that we experimented with a lot, sort of week one. What are your thoughts about it fitting into the Ruby Amethyst deck now? Should I go? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Go for it. Um. Yeah, so I, we experimented right from the start with it, and I think it has potential, but it can't live out that potential right now because current meta is not about fighting about board that much. Because the aggro deck is very, very much trying to let not let you trade into the characters or not not mm -hmm. let it matter that much. And the Ruby Amethyst deck itself, you can trade a little bit, but it's very much about chipping in at all times and not about these grand boards, grand scale board fights because also of cards like be prepared which would stop those in its tracks anyways um so i think it can't really shine right now um you know if if if, if something like be prepared was like restricted or banned then then she would be a whole lot better but i think in current meta it just it doesn't really have its its spot mm -hmm. All right, our last question here is from Darren. This is from, not from last week's podcast, but this is from the deck tech that Moyne and I did on the Ruby Amethyst list uh, that we put up on YouTube. If you're interested in the deck list, in the description below, or you can check out the video. They say, haven't listened yet, so apologies if it's already answered. How does a lack of endgame, uh, endgame fat things like Lady Tremaine, Maleficent Dragon, etc., feel like it Im impacts control matchups? I tried to drop my curve to sim, uh, tried to drop my curve similar to this, and it felt like it took out took my auto win versus other control decks down to a real fight without overly helping me in aggro matchups. This is a particularly interesting comment in multiple ways, because in the last sentence it does say that they had a previous auto win into other control decks, which is interesting, uh, with a higher curve. And it says that it didn't help versus aggro. So I think that uh, ideologically when approaching the deck building of Ruby Amethyst, Moyne and I now for two sets um, have opted to go lower, lower curve rather than higher curve. We've opted for uh, being the aggressor in the control matchup. And then that has had the added benefit of we inherently play more to board and does usually help with the aggro matchup. So I would say that in regards to sort of answering answering this question from like a super high level, I think that our experience in the matchups is actually antithetical or opposite to this. I think I've run into the the opposite where against a, against a uh, opposing control deck mirror match, it almost felt 
close to auto winning that you had the lower curve and you were much more aggressive and you weren't playing things like brooms and trying to loop your deck and playing this very clunky 64 plus card deck. So it felt really good. And on the other hand, uh, those, those lower curve characters inherently helped against aggro because you were actually able to compete on board outside of just all inning on be prepared on turn, uh, on the later turns. Wayne? Um, so if you just talk about this set to Ruby Amethyst, I think you're right, it doesn't overly help against aggro. We basically play the, still the same early game that's very, the, the, like the, the very relevant cards against aggro, we still play the same package. That That's not really the point. The We didn't, so while maybe it's like very slightly better against aggro, that's not the reason we changed up the deck and its play patterns. I think the reason was to be better against control, which you seem to be struggling with. Um, so I think, I don't know why the control mirrors would, would be auto win before. Maybe you're talking about playing against, uh, Sapphire, against Ruby Sapphire, which, yes, I can, I can see it maybe being a little bit different than before. Well, before you could just like keep jamming your cards and it, it would just get there. Maybe now you need to be thinking about how exactly do we want to be getting to 20 a little bit more. But I think, uh, basically, the the lack of end game isn't that relevant because the end th- there's less ed- end game to be played mm-hmm. because in in the late game you can still just uh keep keep chipping in we we've talked about this a lot mm. yeah I, so I, I I don't know I don't know if I have much much to add to that it's just a little bit of a different game plan that makes uh these late game threats often not not so relevant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so push it, the, often in the control mirror, let's say mirror match, Ruby Amethyst versus Ruby Amethyst, mm-hmm. we are, our deck is positioned as the aggressor rather than as the control deck and does that through the cheap characters that are able to gain lots of lore. And we find that to be overwhelmingly better in the control mirror match rather than trying to compete with a you know control v control attrition style deck, which is what a lot of the decks are doing in set one. And now maybe set two will evolve to that because set two is still quite dynamic in terms of how the, the matches are playing out. All right, I want to jump into, for the main topic, I want to jump into the deck list from this 200-player tournament. Started off, uh, first and second are both Ruby Amethyst. I would be surprised if these players did not test together. These de- these deck lists are different. Um, one is playing Queen of Hearts, one is playing Lady Tremaine, and some others. Uh, but they are very similar on a lot of cards, which makes me think that they were testing together. One is the most the most diabolical scheme. They have two of. They both have four Teeth of Ambitions. Um, and then they have like this pretty much the same early game, late game. One has access to Scar, Vicious Cheater, uh, in the form of one of, and the other does not. So lists are, lists are very, very similar. Both look to be control decks. Both are playing the minima- Are they both playing Minimouse Evasive? No, one of them isn't. So one of them is playing the Evasive Minimouse, and one is, one is not. Boy, and, and again, for deck lists, if you're listening, description below, we'll link to the Mushi report on all of these deck lists. Um, Moy, what are your thoughts on the first and second place lists here? And do you want to sort of separate them? Are they different enough to be talked about in a vacuum? Um, I think we shouldn't really separate them. I like that there's a few evasive mini mouse that made it into first place list. Um, so I guess the the biggest talking point is um basically that they don't play pascals no. uh, which i think is a fine decision to make pascals can be a little bit better uh in mid game control mirrors where they can quest for a little bit longer but at the same time 
they are a lot worse against Steel late game because they immediately die to AoE and um, uh, from from Tinkerbell and Grab Your Sword, which Minimouse and Olaf don't. And also the big reason why uh, we see Minimouse and Olaf in these lists and not Pascal is the Tifa and Ambitions package. So th they were trying to tag for, for aggro a little bit. One um, added Lady Tremaine on top of that, the two cost that takes away one lore. The other one adding Queen of Hearts to, to rush into early Lilos and Maleficence. Um, I think overall, very good lists. I, I mean, of course, I, you, you know, you know how I would play the deck, right? I don't need to, to just say, oh, change that, change that, and then it's my list. I think both of these lists are, are very good, and yeah, I'm not not surprised to to see them perform so well. I think the key difference is the heavy top end, right? So we do see four Lady Tremaine and four Maleficent, uh, Maleficent Dragon in both of them, and then they have sort of two or three Yzmas across the two. Uh, so it does look like they, you know, they have leaned more into that top end rather than into the early game. So potentially think that the early game is strong enough um, in order to combat some of the aggressive decks and then have leaned more into the traditional control. Um, it's really interesting, though, in terms of the aggregate of Ruby Amethyst, the items of Ruby Amethyst, the Sorcerer Spellbook, not, not Sorcerer Spellbook, sorry, the, the Magic Mirror and the Cauldron have pretty much evaporated from every single list because the draw engine, I guess, is so powerful via these Merlins um, or the four-cost Merlin and Friends of the Other Side. I guess you just don't need anymore. Both players are playing two Sorcerer Spellbooks. So do you think that's the future of Ruby Amethyst? Do you think that Ruby Amethyst, like the days of the Magic Mirror and the Cauldron are gone? And is that a result of uh, Benja as well? Oh, I think it is literally nothing to do with Benja. Mm -hmm. I think it's just uh, it doesn't need to rely on Magic Mirror for Kachwa anymore because it's so good at um, at keeping at being able to spend resources for a long time efficiently without needing to spend all that ink on, on Magic Mirror. So I think I mean Benja, do Benja doesn't even see that much play currently. I, I think it has really nothing to do with it. I guess the, the other big differences um, would be that they play a lot less Scar than than we like to play. Um, and I I don't really get the most diabolical scheme. I think it might be my first instinct. Maybe it's them trying to be like a little more fancy than they need to be. Yes, you can like uh, sacrifice. Mm. Wait, what, what? What are even the villains that you can sacrifice? Uh, I the small cards, like, like you know, like the Ma Maleficent, Madame Mim, Queen of Hearts, Lady Tremaine. So those are like the small end stuff. I if they test it together, it makes me think it's actually mirror attack. So that they're sacrificing mm. their Maleficence and uh, or their their three cost Maleficence to hit their opposing uh, their opponent's nine costs. Like maybe mm. they just cooked a little bit in the mirror. Mm. So you can't even sacrifice your your Merlins, can you? No, your Merlin's okay, I'm, low. I'm, I, I I like it even less than. Yeah, it's an it's interesting inclusion that, that I wasn't expecting, uh, to be honest. But I I do wonder if they tested together if it is like some mirror tech, where they you know they were so good at the deck that or they just cooked a little bit too much in testing, so they added the card. Or maybe they were, they felt so confident that they would meet in the finals and they would need this niche tech card in order to beat their opponent. Which I'm not even sure how good it is in the mirror, to be honest. Because <laughs> you're still sacrificing the character. Anyway. Yeah. Well, let's head on to the uh, third and fourth place, which is both Steel Amber decks, which are very, very different, actually. Um, the first one is from Mateo. That is a more traditional wheel steel deck. And then the other one is 
from Robin uh, Robin Hale, and it is no wheel. It is just amber steel. Let's just dig into that deck list. I'll let you start out here, Kala. What do you think about this no uh, whole new world amber steel deck? It's really interesting. Uh, a whole new world saved me on multiple occasions in my games. Uh, that being said, for the most part, I like the cards that they have on the deck. I, I don't know if, if I want to say instead of a whole new world, but like they have other good cards in the deck, right? I have a huge amount of respect for the five cost beast now. I think that card is absolutely insane. Yep. Especially in Amber, especially in Amber Steel. The new beast, right? Um, yeah, the, of course, of course, the new beast. Um, they've got Benjis in there, which like Moyen was saying, uh, like in my experience, I saw like a Benji here and there, but it's by no means a staple in um, the deck at the moment. Like neither of these lists are running Lantern either, right? So like there's, there's so many cards that uh, are kind of constantly changing within this Amber Steel archetype. Mm. Uh, the Lawrence is an interesting inclusion. I I don't think that card would be good at all, right? It's like, as long as it's not damaged, then it's a 4-4, four, four, but especially in a heavy Amber Steel meta, right? You just ping that with whatever. Like, it might even be worth that you just let the Storm Rage on it just so it has no attacks and you just, okay, maybe a quest for two once, but then you just kill it, you take no damage, it's gone. Like, I don't think that card's that good, but I mean, if, if it made top four, maybe it's doing something that I'm not seeing. Uh, and the more I think about it, I'm actually kind of a fan. I, I am a fan of having three drop tinks, small tinks, mm. back in Amber Steel. I saw a lot of people cutting it. I didn't include it in my list, but I still think being able to shift into big tink on turn four to be able to sing something is still pretty good. And I think that a two four in a deck that, you know, can kind of deal with three health cards, not even that easily, but like a four health card, that's kind of tough to deal with. So, um, yeah, I like some of the inclusions, but I would still put a wheel in this deck. Like, I mm. I don't think all of these are warranted. Like, what I, I would literally right now, if this guy was like, oh, I have Lawrence in my deck, I'm like, take those two, I'll put in two wheels. Like, like this, why, why, why is this card being played? So yeah, guys yeah. in the comments, please let me know if may maybe I'm missing something. Do you guys see something that it's I'm a, not seeing with this card? They're actually two different archetypes, in my opinion. Uh, so the wheel okay. steel deck is like it's a, it, it's its own archetype to an extent, mm -hmm. and we saw this back in chapter one because whole new world exists in chapter one as well. So when a whole new world was being started to be played quite a bit, or at least like we saw people when the the meadow is heavily dominated by dominated by amber steel, we saw people cut wheel. In order to have mm. a more mid-range deck that just competes on board and like dunks on those decks because it just has so much AOE board removal, has these big butts, and like that's how you win the mirror. The thing is, without wheel or without a whole new world, there's actually like I don't know how it happens because apparently it does, but in my opinion, there's no way you beat Ruby Amethyst without a whole new world because they you just cannot draw any cards against them. Maybe the new beast helps you, but the, they will remove that card, and the idea that you're going to get value out of Rapunzel is crazy. Like, your opponent has to actively make a mistake most of the time for you to draw cards off Rapunzel in the Ruby Amethyst matchup. Like, it is very, very rare. So, I think they're actually two different archetypes. Um, and I do think that the one without wheel is probably more favored in the mirror, but I don't know if it's by a huge margin. Uh, Moyen, what are your thoughts? Um, uh, so, go ahead. Yes, I, I agree on them being two different archetypes, and I sometimes like to entertain the thought of no wheel being playable. I've come down on that a little bit, but what what I would like to say is basically, if you don't play wheel, I think a big reason for that w for me would be to play, to basically play very efficient cards, out tempo my opponent, and then also, um, 
basically run them out of stuff to deal with my stuff, which for that, I would definitely include You Have Forgotten Me. I think You Have Forgotten Me is a big reason why I would maybe try to play a version without uh, without Wii. Um, because then with the double disc cut, it can be very hard to keep up with uh, Amber Steel. So I'm, I'm a little bit surprised to n- not see that included. Um, I think the Lawrence is... Honestly, I, I don't hate it. I think it's kind of fun. Um, probably wouldn't play it in a competitive event, but uh, it's it's decent enough that it's that's a kind of fun inclusion, I would say. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting what you said there, Brendan. About I don't know how this deck beats Ruby Amethyst without Wheel because in my fourth game, uh, or sorry, my my fourth round, I guess, of Swiss, uh, it was one apiece, and I was against Ruby Amethyst. I had Ariel, and I misplayed so hard because I chose a song that wasn't a whole new world. And as soon as I chose that song, I realized if I chose a whole new world, that was the card that actually gave me a decent sh- shot to stay in the matchup as soon as i got rid of it i was like the game's over yeah so like the, it, it is a huge factor of how you win those matchups in terms of maybe you know like coming up to turn seven uh maybe you wield them and they had to be prepared in their hand and you suddenly you get rid of the be prepared yeah. maybe you let them dry into be prepared but it's probably the risk that you have to take realistically and the chance to mess them up with the wheel uh it it, pay, it pays off a lot. So, so um, I want to yeah. dig into that because you actually spoke about some interesting dynamics of the okay. whole new world and how to play into Ruby Amethyst. I think if you're casting a whole new world on turn seven, you're probably in a losing position on the game unless your opponent. Wait, wait, is... I, when when I, what you you think I'm hard casting it? Casting it whatsoever. So the thing about okay. the dynamic versus Ruby Amethyst is that these decks effectively do unfair things when they cast a whole new world on turn three and dump their entire hand because they draw seven mm-hmm. cards and their opponent draws two cards or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that's where you get massive card advantage. When you do it later in the game, The it is not necessarily bad. Your opponent can still be not drawing as many cards as you, be discarding a lot more, and you can get card advantage through that. But in general, heuristically, the later you cast a whole new world, the more ink your opponent has, the worse it is because their their card quality and their, their curve is better and higher than yours. So they'll be playing better cards and you'll be re- refilling their hand with more powerful cards. That being said, it's g- game context is everything. But I do see, especially in chapter one, people misplayed a whole new world against me when I was on Ruby Amethyst very, very frequently because they would cast it to refill their hand when they had run out of threats, which could be correct. But it almost guarantees you a loss against something like a Ruby Amethyst deck if we're at turn eight and the board is anywhere near parity or something like that. Sometimes you have no other out, but I would see players in winning positions cast a whole new world because they found it off the top and then immediately put themselves in a losing position because now i've found seven new cards all of which are you know six drops eight drops and nine drops that just dominate the board um so i just wanted to mention that because you mentioned like you said you're casting it on turn seven context is everything and context can change things but in general the reason my whole new world is powerful is not because you draw seven cards it's because you draw this many cards and your opponent or you discard one card or zero cards and your opponent discards five that's where it becomes unfair is in the disparity, not the card in of itself, because the card the card is inherently symmetrical, and your role as the Amber Steel deck is to put your opponent in a position where that effect is asymmetrical, and you gain more value. Yeah, another reason why it's good against Ruby Amethyst as well is if they bounce anything back and they don't play it, then I had somebody I had somebody play. They thought they were so smart. They used Elsa. They bounced it back. They were like, "Oh my god, value!" And then they did a whole new world, and Elsa was gone. Bibbidi boo. <laughs> No, but so, I think Holy World is extremely interesting in its play patterns. So basically, the, the easiest mistake you can make is to uh, to 
be so attached to your cards that you only want to be playing a whole new world once you've used all of your all of your other cards. But maybe in that time you've allowed your opponent to use more cards than you've used in that time, and then maybe they can break the parity a little bit. Um, other than that, it's I would say if you're not playing against Ruby, uh, not Ruby, is it Ruby? Ruby's red. Yes, Ruby's <laughs> yeah. red. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you're not playing, <laughs> if you're not playing against Ruby, it can. It sometimes it can not matter how many cards your opponent has because if you can sing a whole new world w- with enough ink and then just flood all the small creatures on the board and they don't have a way to deal with it because they don't have any AOE, maybe that's uh, because their colors don't have access to that, then it can be very fine. No matter how many cards your opponent has, they, they won't be able to deal with it. Against Ruby, I would say a lot of the time, you I actually, I actually think, or at least a decent amount of the time, I think it's correct to hard cast a whole new world later in the game instead of singing it because you want to be gaining the lore and then play whole new world because you don't need all that ink to force them to be prepared anyway. So you can like actually play it, just play one or two threats. It's enough so that they're in a bad, either they have to be prepared or if they don't, they're kind of in a bad spot. So that's I think a very fair point. Yeah, mm. Like don't over sing it in very specific sessions, but I don't know. There's, a lot of context to how you should play with that card and it's a it's a very it's a very strong it's a very annoying card at times but it's also a very interesting card yeah you know, you know my fa- my favorite card in this list is and in all amber steel at the moment hands down within set two ha- has to be let the storm rage on the card is so so good in these lists it's ridiculous you sing it with cinderella you can even even when I've had the hard cast, I think the card is still really good. It's interesting, Brendan, that you said against Ruby Amethyst, like you know, Rapunzel. Obviously, like if you're against a really good player, Rapunzel seems kind of useless. I've sung Let the Storm Rage On, hit my own card to heal it with Rapunzel to draw cards, and it still felt good. Yeah, it still felt good to do that. It's the interesting yeah. thing with Let the Storm Rage On. Obviously, you don't get an insane amount of value that exchange, but you're still up mm-hmm. on cards, right? Which is actually yeah. kind of crazy. A- and you yeah, it's really your good. Sleepy's flute. <laughs> and exactly, and I'm proccing Sleepy Slew. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, so people yeah. used to do that in, um, they used to do something similar to that in, they would, effectively, they would smash their own card in order to draw off of it, but you would barely be getting. That seems, that seems way worse, right? Because, like, at least you could sing worse. this. So you're not, yeah, you're not spending well, the cost. Yeah, also, yeah. let's turn my jaw and also replaces itself, which is like, yeah. why this card is so powerful. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. It's it's kind of funny looking at the set reviews nowadays because we were we were definitely quite correct on a lot of cards um, and a lot of the ones we got flack for uh, aren't being played <laughs> now <laughs> like Dinnerbell and Bippity Boppity Boo. Uh, let's let's talk about the rest of the top eight. So it was two more Ruby Amethyst decks, both oriented in terms of control. We won't go through the list; they're relatively similar, but there are some changes. So if you're interested in a different way to play Ruby Amethyst, check it out. One of these people is playing Peter Pan Shadow, which is like what. <laughs> That card is very, very good against evasives and would probably be quite good against uh, Moin and Ice deck. I don't know about the two of because it is uninkable, but if we were more in evasives, this is an absolute evasive hoser. It is so good against other evasive characters. So that that's interesting. And then there's one other deck list that made it into top eight. One other archetype, which is unsurprisingly Sapphire Ruby, and it is the Sapphire Ruby item deck. So that, I mean, we, I say surpri- unsurprisingly, but... This deck has really fall, fallen off, at least in terms of like representation. I mean, this is a single sample size of a tournament, but the top eight, I mean, this deck a couple weeks ago was the absolute deck. 
And now it feels like Ruby Amethyst is taking that slot on the podium. Uh, once again, <laughs> once again, I remember being so scared looking at chapter two, thinking that Ruby Amethyst is going to go away. <laughs> and here it is. <laughs> here it is. So, yeah, good times. Good times to be oh. a Lorcana player. You're going to say something. Oh, also, also, another card you got flagged for was uh, World's Greatest Villain. I mean, in, in the two lists, we, we, we see top eight, which is, I mean, that's just anecdotes, but there's, there's two of them. To be fair, I think... Um, oh, the Criminal Mind, is it? Yeah. The World's Greatest Criminal Mind? Yeah, this card's yeah. so good. I love it. Um, yes, it is. But So basically, the, the review that we got flagged for was basically saying, um, this is a good card in decks. It is okay, in, or like pretty good in decks with Ariel, and it's really good in decks with Ariel that also play the Shift Queen. And I think that's basically where we're at right now. This, if you don't play the Queen, uh, which people are playing, but if you wouldn't play the Queen, people wouldn't be playing... Might or only a few, but together with Ariel and the Queen, it is a it is a good card. It's Without a good those, card. I it wouldn't see play. Yeah, yep. I opened. I, a, I think that's I opened a, a foil dinner bell last night. The other night, <laughs> off, uh, I got two starter decks <clears throat> from Target and MSRP. So first time ever. I remember I pulled a, a dinner bell and I handed it to my girlfriend who doesn't play very many TCGs, but has played a little bit. I was like, "What do you think of this card?" She's like. This card is shit. I was like, <laughs> 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 yes, <laughs> um, maybe oh. it's playable at some point because there's the the new Lady Tremaine. But ultimately, it's like that's a four cost uninkable, and then you have to pay to activate it. It's like, oh, oh my goodness, uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, Moy, uh, sorry, Kali, you were talking about people were resolving Bibbidi Bobbidi Boo on you last weekend. Yeah, uh, there was. I say people, one person. Yeah. <laughs> One dude was playing a purple green deck, which was definitely interesting. The concept that he had going was was pretty cool. It actually ran Lucifer and stuff, and it gave me a bit of a hard time for at least one game. But uh, yeah, basically, I played against this person, and before he even played Bibbidi Bobby Boo, he was like, "Just before you call over a judge, the card actually does work like this." And I'm like, "I I, I know, I know." But uh, <laughs> yeah, it it didn't it didn't do anything too crazy. Like it was. It was fine. It didn't do anything near near as crazy as what people were talking about when we first mentioned the card. When people were saying the card is absolutely insane. You know, it might be so. broken in the future. Like there are tons of cards that we rated lowly because we we rated them uh, outside of context, which is what sure, sure. Were. But you know, in the right context, Bippity Bobbity Boo could be broken because if you can cast Bippity Bobbity Boo and immediately win the game, it's a good card. But you need other cards to do that. In and of yeah. itself, it is uh, it's not super great. All right. Well, that concludes this week. I did mention last week that we're going to do a giveaway for the Disney 100 collection, so like special collection of full art cards. Uh, it is currently in the mail. It finally got shipped. I bought it on TCG Player a couple of weeks ago, so it's finally been shipped. So we're going to push that to next week if it does get delivered. But in order to enter that, all you got to do is leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Keep in mind, it does may maybe take like one, two days for your, for your review to pop up. So get those in as soon as possible before we draw uh, for that giveaway. And yeah, hopefully it'll be at my house soon. Um, but yeah, anyway, leaving us a review is the number one thing you do to help us out. It's, it's, yeah, it's just great. And it helps us a lot with SEO uh, and getting sort of getting ranked there on pod platforms. So this video version of this on YouTube, youtube.com slash at podcana podcast. Hit that subscriber right there. We are super close to 1,000 subscribers. I think it's like 970 or something like that. Um, so definitely hit subscribe right there. Twitter's Brendan APG, Moyen underscore HS, and Kawa Tech underscore CG, not Kawa underscore CG. Thank you all so much <laughs> for listening. We'll see you next week.